0: Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, healthcare, and workforce development explore new education-to-work approaches and innovations. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. My guest today is as well-known abroad as he is in the U.S. for being a pioneer in the cooperative business model. Howard Brodsky is co-founder and co-CEO of CCA Global Partners, one of the largest retail companies in America, serving over 1 million family businesses. The $12 billion organization, which also has presence in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, is the parent company for 14 other businesses in flooring, carpeting, lighting, and other sectors, including childcare. Industry and nonprofit leaders describe Howard as a visionary social entrepreneur and a true champion of people and community. Over the course of his career, he has founded 22 cooperative companies and nonprofits and served on 23 board of directors. He's been recognized in the Entrepreneur Hall of Fame, received the World Affairs Council Global Leadership Award, and was named the first American to receive the Rochdale Award, considered the Nobel Prize of Global Cooperatives. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Juan, it's my pleasure to be here with you.
0: Well, we were introduced by Marina Gorbis, who was head of Institute for the Future in context of future work discussions. It was interesting that during my tenure as an entrepreneur in residence there, it was often brought up that the worker co-op is a model for the new economy. And I was wondering if you could explain what led to your interest in this shared ownership model and why did you found CCA Global?
1: Yeah, Vaughn, I grew up in a small family business and uh, my father was actually a Russian immigrant. And I took over a small family business after I graduated college, a two-person business. But after it grew, I realized that scale was gonna become everything. And family businesses, could only grow to a certain size. They're competing against large conglomerates. And looking for a new model, I had a friend that actually was involved in cooperatives and I didn't even understand what cooperatives were and introduced me to someone and um, understood that the power of cooperatives was not only bringing scale and stronger together, but it's I call it capitalism with a conscience. It's not just capitalism, it's putting people, not profit first. And cooperatives are gonna be owned by everyone, not me. So it empowers people. And once I understood that model and started the company, one sort of business led to the other business where we really understood that family businesses were so much at risk. I call it the fabric of our communities, but they need scale. And how can you have scale without losing control? And what cooperatives do is they give you scale without losing control and give you the tools you need to compete against any large company in the world.
0: It's interesting that the phenomena of worker co-ops are coming up at this moment in time, especially as we talk about the gig economy. Uh, What was thought provoking was to see journalists who are becoming independent workers coming together to form workers co-op in order to have the buying power or the scale to be able to buy benefits, for example. So in a prior podcast, the head of Lumina Foundation noted that for this new economy, we needed new social structures, such as portable benefits, and certainly workers co-op is one of those concepts, one of those structures that seem to be particularly good match for that economy. So as chairman of the cooperatives for a better world, I mean, you've been working to increase the number of co-ops around the world by 25%. Why isn't this model more widely used in the US? And and do you think it's misunderstood?
1: I think, first of all, it is misunderstood. I think when you mention the word cooperatives, people think food co-ops. It's the first thing that comes to people's mind. It's really a shared ownership business model. And I think it can apply to so many sectors in so many ways. You know, in America, as we know, we have a fading middle class and we have the highest inequality of any developed nation in the world. When the top 1% received 90% of all the wealth in the world in the last decade, we know that our economic structure is wrong. And I think a lot of people have said the capitalism is dead. I don't think it's dead. I think it has to be modified so that it cares about people. And co-ops do that. Well, I think what co-ops have lacked, Vaughn, is recognition for their flexibility and the different segments they can go in. And I think also co-ops have lacked capital Uh, because in in co-ops, you're probably, you're not going to get the 50-time return. It's not going public. It's not a nonprofit. We are very profitable. Most co-ops are very profitable. The only difference is we return our money to the members. Uh, So we return multi-billion dollars to our members and that really increases equality, it increases ownership, it increases opportunity, but it's not gonna be where you go public and somebody makes a hundred times.
0: You know, Howard, um, based on my conversation with you, uh, back almost a year ago, we've had it in our mind to create a worker co-op that can help students with placement and staffing. And because in workforce development, them landing into a job is so critical to the model. And so in January of this year, we actually stood up a legal entity called Allied Up to serve as a staffing and placement firm for allied health jobs. Mm -hmm. Now, what are the key advantages to the shared ownership model? I mean, you kind of alluded to it, but how does it relate to the employee experience and and what does participation look like from an employee experience? And could I ask you one more, which is Does it improve retention? Because many of these uh, small health centers, for example, are experiencing churn 20 to 30% in some of their occupations. So if we were able to put in place a workers co-op to help with staffing, would it have benefit in addressing retention?
1: Well, first of all, um, it's a great question, Juan. To go back to the first part of it, I think there are two types of poverty that we have in the world and in the United States. I think there's poverty of economics and this poverty of hope. And I think what co-ops do is they address both of those issues. To your point, what co-ops do is people are empowered. They own something. You know, I know at the Institute of the Future, Marina's book, the minimum basic assets, that she felt was so critical in the world. You know, a lot of people don't have assets. When they become part an owner of a co-op, they have a say in it. And it is shown actually retention goes up, I think, almost 65% if they are owners rather than just employees. And so they have a much stronger dedication, a much stronger sense of obligation, but also a much stronger sense of hope. And isn't that what we all need? We, we need hope. Uh, you know, when we see the devastation of so many people left behind, you know, I just saw recently that 50 million people are going hungry in the United States and 40 million people are going evicted. I always say that people might need subsidy. They don't want subsidy, they want opportunity. What you're doing in in your world, Juan, you're giving people opportunity. I think people need opportunity. I'm all for the subsidies that are going out now because they need them, but that doesn't put people in a different economic position because they'll need them again next year and the year after. What you want to do is really create a new economic environment where they have ownership shared prosperity and shared wealth.
0: And could you give us an example of like what that means in terms of, of shared ownership? How, how does that feel to the worker themselves?
1: One of the great probably cases of uh, cooperatives in the world is a company in Spain called Mondragon that is incredibly accessible. They're industrial and they're owned by 85,000 employees. And I think they have like 75 different factories that make televisions and bicycles. And, um, and during the recession, it was interesting. The employees voted not to lay anybody off. So they took some minor reductions in pay so that no one would be laid off. And they have the lowest unemployment rate in Spain and the highest retention rate of any company. So you're combined with economic opportunity, hope, retention, and a sense of ownership that you could never get just being an employee.
0: That's an incredible story of stewardship by the workers themselves. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Oh, it's incredible.
0: Well, I'm gonna take advantage of your problem-solving skills here and and throw you a problem that's in the healthcare (laughs) field, which is with home health aides. As you know, this classification is notorious for being poorly paid, and yet they're the ones working with the complexity of care in the home. And uh, you've shared with me once before a set of ideas on how to restructure this occupation so that it actually be, can become a more viable, livable uh, wage. Give us the detail of how you think we could approach this.
1: Sure. Well, I have this in my own personal experience. My oldest son is very, very seriously ill, and requires home care workers, multiple home care workers, for now going on three years, and. I saw what happens is, if you go to an agency, you're paying the agency twenty-five to thirty to thirty-five dollars an hour, and the agency is paying the worker twelve to fourteen dollars an hour. Well, twelve dollars an hour is not a livable wage today. I know they want to raise the minimum to fifteen, but frankly, twelve to fourteen, I would say almost every single person was working two jobs, and I call that part of the extraction economy one because. Extraction economies, when the person taking in the money is getting a disproportionate amount of the money for the person doing the work. As you know, the home care worker is doing all the work. So I hired people directly uh, so I could pay them a living wage. I could pay them $25 an hour. But I think there's a way to do a cooperative. In fact, there is, and there's some cases of it, in the home care health worker. Currently, there are over $4.5 Home care aid workers, and they need almost a million and a half more. But you're not going to get people at $12 an hour taking those jobs or at least making a living wage without working 90 hours a week. But if you actually formed a cooperative, they could own it. Just think about it. The only thing that really has to be done is placement. And placement is not that difficult. The demand is enormous. So if they could go from making $11.50 an hour to making $22 $22 an hour, because the overhead's probably four to five dollars an hour. They could double their wage. And the other thing is, you could provide them with benefits, as you said, with some benefits for with access to health care and other elements at a cheaper cost. You could provide them with uh, discounts on gas cards so that their car and discounts on insurance so that they actually take home more money. And also in our changing healthcare world today, telemedicine is going to become so important. That home aid is the crucial element in the connection to the patient. They know what's going on with the patient more than anybody. And they could be an instrumental part of the telemedicine. I mean, they know what supplies that that person needs on a regular basis. What goods are coming into their house? Well, part of the cup could be actually providing those supplies and they could get a percentage of that. It wouldn't cost the customer anymore. I mean, I think you could raise their wages from an average of $11.50, 12, $12 an hour to $24, $25 an hour. And you're talking four and a half million people.
0: Is it a function of the co-op being willing to accept less profit than a private sector, a regular private sector company?
1: No question. So the co-op, whatever profit is actually comes out, goes back to its members. So even if theoretically, say theoretically, um, the co-op charged $30 an hour, and they paid the worker instead of 12, say they paid them 17 hour, or 18 hour, they went up 25, 30%. And there was an extra $4 an hour left over in profit after their expenses overhead. All that profit, 100% gets returned to the workers. Not, not 5%. Right now, I can tell you, it is a very profitable business to own an agency in the home healthcare world. It is extremely profitable. There, are, People are making a lot of money in it. And the reason is, it's extraction. So yes, co-ops, if they make a profit, it always goes back to its members because it's owned by the members. There's total alignment of goals between the worker and the organization.
0: So in, in the case of um, a family that needs to hire one of these home care aid, the cost of them is still the same. It's just that the worker is getting proportionally more payback.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Into their pocket.
1: That's what you want. I can tell you, they usually know what's being paid. And a lot of times they feel so undervalued because they know that they're only getting half of what actually is being paid, less than half in most cases of what's being paid. And you're not asking them to do more work. You're asking them to participate as an owner and you would have management find the jobs and place them. Current home care agencies do not do a lot of training. And you could actually have better training and better sophisticated uh, home health care workers in the future.
0: You mentioned a part two of this, this model, which is that they're the ones who understand what supplies to order, right? And that they can get a percentage of that order. Could you talk about more of this model? And you've lived through a similar model in the past, right?
1: Yes. Well, you know, as I said, for my own sons, there are supplies, medical supplies that get shipped in. There's normal Goods that get shipped in that he needs on a regular basis, and they're just ordering them through whoever they want. Well, if the co-op was participating in this, it could be ordered through the co-op, and the homemade worker would actually get a piece of that happening. So they would participate in the in the economic process, which is that's how you're going to lift up people out of poverty. That's how you're going to lift up and make Middle America a, a wealthier America than it is and not have people left behind. And it also, it would be easy for the the person being taken care of to have everything go through one place and more coordinated.
0: So what you're suggesting is the co-op prearranges some master contracts with these distributors or the the manufacturers.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. Right. Let the co-op negotiate with them. And that's the old thing with scale. What the co-op can bring is scale. What individual home care workers could never do is bring scale. But if the cooperative dealt with the issues of negotiating contracts so that they could just show an app and say to the patient that when they're taking care of and say, here, here's the things you need, and you're not going to pay any more. And also I can coordinate when they're coming in, when you need them. And then the home care worker could participate in having part of that beside their hourly wage being higher, they can actually be more a part of the holistic job of making them healthier.
0: I see, Howard. So if I were the individual home care worker, I mean, I probably couldn't even get an appointment because I have no purchasing power. No. But the co-op can represent a thousand of us or even a few hundred of us. That's enough to at least get the conversation going.
1: You could absolutely have thousands. You could represent thousands. I can tell you that that's we do a lot of negotiating contracts and there would be a a lot of money on the table for the home care worker.
0: Mm, That's good to know. Now, your organization has gotten into the childcare business. Now, childcare yes. is another occupation that has notoriously low wages. is also high concentration of females as well and minorities. Uh, how did you get into the childcare business uh, initially?
1: Well, actually the Aspen Institute came to us about, I'd say about 12, 14 years ago and said, you know, we want to study your model. Somebody told us about your model, and we think it would work good in the nonprofit sector. And Kirsten Moy, who was and leading the Aspen Institute on Scaling of Nonprofits, came to us and said, I'd like to introduce nonprofits to you, because I think your model would work in nonprofits. They're like little cottage businesses. You really can't combine them well because you know it's the individual that runs them that makes them successful. And I think that was true. And so over a six-month period, she brought in every type of nonprofit from home health agencies to childcare agencies to our organizations. And she said, they love the model and it would work. We thought that childcare was at such a need in America. As is typical, the wealthy get the best agencies in the world, but the people working childcare are making $12 an hour uh, and the turnover was enormous. And so we started in the childcare world going on almost 12 years. And we now support over 22,000 childcare centers in over 33 states across the United States. And what we've done is we've brought down their costs. We've upped their quality, their training, their marketing, their insurance. Um, We've saved individual child cares, you know, $30, $40,000 a year on buying food or insurance. And you know what that translates into? Having one or two more people take care of kids. It translates into having a business that can survive. And so we think it's really critical in our world that not just the wealthy have good care for their children. That's a, a very growing area. And as a cooperative, we can do it because we're concerned about the end result, not just about the profit.
0: Oh, we're so excited to have you on this podcast. It's, it's you know, as it's opportunity and it's hope. And these are all the, the themes that um, this model offers. Tell us a little bit about CCA Global, one of the most successful co- co-ops in the world. What kind of assistance or services do you provide to your members, Howard?
1: So our makeup is really family-owned businesses, mostly in North America, also Australia and New Zealand, but really it's, it's family-owned business one. And as I said, I think family-owned businesses are the core of our country and the core of our communities. And so we do everything from buying to marketing, to technology, to training, And we do it across businesses from everything from bicycle stores and fitness stores, to floor covering stores, to lighting stores, and servicing almost 14 different industry sectors. And just to give you an idea, during the recession, back almost 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, almost 25% of all those businesses went out of business in those sectors. If a member was a part of our cooperative, a family business, we only lost 2%. And what happens when the local family business goes out? You know, they lose their business, they lose their house, they become lower class instantaneously, uh, working for minimum wage. And so we think we've developed a formula, a very good infrastructure of how to really have family business not only just compete, but really succeed and grow. During the pandemic, they're thinking over 25 to 30% of family business will have closed by the end of 2020. And yet, in our members of our groups of all the different cooperatives, again, I think we're going to be under one or 2% um, that almost all of them have succeeded because we provided capital, we provided marketing, technology, learning, education. And I think the question is, how do you get scale without giving up control? And cooperatives give you scale and you maintain ownership of even the cooperative.
0: Those are dramatically different numbers, 25 to 30% uh, death rate versus 1% to 2%. Is it too late? Is it too late, Howard, for, for family-owned businesses to join CCA?
1: Well, as long as we do it within the sectors we're in, we're still looking to grow and certainly looking to help family businesses. And even even in the child care business, we were so busy getting the personal protection equipment, PPE for child care centers and getting uh, in child care centers. What did they need? They needed antimicrobial, and antivirus material to take care of the child care centers and all the elements that their world changed overnight. And we were able to give them, I think, both the education and the resources and sourcing they needed. And that's, again, when somebody is on one, they need to count on somebody to succeed. And I think we've learned that the power of stronger together is really works in a cooperative
0: you know we we've, we've been calling it on the education side uh, ecosystem right that having an ecosystem or a network actually is more resilient during times of disruptive change uh, i could see the power of the collective here um, so you you're an active speaker and often talk about the theme of capitalism with a conscience is uh, capitalism still the best economic model for our country howard
1: well i think the way it is right now no <laughs> the billionaires making I think last year it was over 2.5 to 3 billion a day they increased their wealth. And yet the poorest 90% lost wealth. Um, and that's why we, we have a fading middle class. And, and what's happened is, frankly, it's wealth without fairness. So the very wealthy give money to fix the problems they created. I don't think that's a good economic system. The economic system has to be an economic system that works for all, that doesn't work just for the elite. I think people need more shared ownership, Vaughn. And I think that's what cooperative does. I think people need a stake in what they're involved in, not just going from $14 to $15 an hour. And I think that's a very good thing and important to raise the minimum wage, going to make it somewhat livable. But I think they also need a stake, you know, going back to basic minimum assets. They should own a piece of something. Let them own it. It's not, I don't think it's fair. That one person has 120 billion and the people working for them are not one piece of that company that are doing all the work. So I think capitalism I still strongly believe in, but I think it does have to be capitalism with a conscience.
0: Thank you for being so clear on this issue and also the path forward. Can can I also ask you: is participation in a stock plan sufficient? And why does it differ from the, the co-op model?
1: Well, the co-op model, you have actual ownership, and a say, you actually have a vote. So you, you have real ownership. Not Somebody's not giving you a share. And I would say most companies aren't giving people shares. In a cooperative, it really is shared ownership, shared democracy, and shared wealth. A cooperative is a wonderful blend. It's not a nonprofit. It's not socialism. It's a wonderful blend of capitalism with a heart we're extremely profitable company. We've been profitable every year. The only difference is we return the profit to the people that are part of our company and use it. So we distribute that profit. And I think there has to be more distribution at the base level, not distribution after somebody makes a fortune and they decide where they wanna give the money to. And as I said, they're giving subsidies, not opportunity
0: every time i speak to you it gets me thinking about what what more can we do to improve the situation for our 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 nation i I love this idea of capitalism really with embedded stewardship in the values now you have many many members in cca all of these family-owned businesses and you so you have a broad view of what's happening in the economy what are you seeing and hearing about their workforce challenges howard
1: well i think it depends which sector you're in um you know as you know certain sectors have been devastated by the pandemic certainly you know the hospitality sector has been just really devastated and i mean i have a lot of friends that in the restaurant business that their world is turned upside down but i think in the workforce i think it's realigning what i've seen is it's realigning people to where the opportunity is there are excellent jobs and opportunities out there and people don't have the skill sets you take probably a classic one of cybersecurity I mean, there's an enormous demand, and the training is not um, is not a three four year. I think everybody's not made to go to a four year at college. I think it's it's aligning the educational opportunities with the growth opportunities in the different sectors.
0: If you were, for example, to roll out these uh, training and upskilling opportunities, do you think the employees would? take advantage of them naturally? Or do you think there are more incentives that are needed in order for uh, employees to upskill?
1: It's a great question, Mon. I think one of the things is you have to give people a transition period because a lot of people can't stop working. I think that's one of the issues. Some, Some people are working, but they're working at jobs that they can't make a living on. So if you're working and making $9 an hour, you can't give up the nine, even though that seems crazy, but you can't give up the nine. Where we need the subsidy, is to give people a working wage while they're learning new skills and i don't think that has to be for long periods but if you really want to change people's path and you want to change their opportunities you have to build their skill set level to a new level that maybe didn't exist before and you need to give them a transition period of income because then you're not just giving subsidies but you're giving opportunity
0: that's good advice that's good advice Let's go global for a moment. I know in the past year or so, you attended the International Cooperative Conference in Rwanda. Why was it special that it was held in Rwanda?
1: Rwanda, as we all know, came out of the genocide. Not that long. Ago. It was only like 26 years ago that it came out of the genocide. The country was torn apart, literally. Um, and, you know, millions of people were killed by their neighbors. It was neighbor against neighbor. and It was interesting when we heard from the head of Rwanda and the head of commerce, that the country now economically is doing very well. And they said, there's only one reason, cooperatives. So it's interesting that almost 40% of the population in Rwanda belongs to a cooperative. And they said, without cooperative structure, you would not have the people working together, the democracy and the opportunity. And it was such a classic case of understanding the power of cooperatives. There was a country literally torn apart on, torn apart by neighbors, by the killings, by the economic crisis, everything. And cooperatives brought them back together. They're healthy economically now. They're healthy democratically now. And they said there was only one reason because of cooperatives. And they had to work together. They had to share ownership and they had to share wealth and opportunity. And it was amazing to be there And to talk to the people and to see how much cooperatives played such a large part in their life, coming out of such a horrific time in their life. I don't think we could ever imagine what happened to them and their current state of neighbors to neighbors now literally working together, owning the same company.
0: That's amazing. Well, I'm part of the Brodsky Choir to get the word out on <laughs> workers' co-ops, as you know. Uh, let's close by asking you this question, this personal question. I hear you are also a justice of the peace. Tell our audience more about the weddings you perform and why.
1: Well, you know, many years ago, I got a justice of peace license, um, and I had an employee came up and said, uh, could you perform our wedding? I said, well, I guess I could. And uh, so that started. So over the years, actually, I have performed weddings for my relatives and employees. I performed now over 30 weddings with no divorces. I'm a 30 and 0. So if somebody wants to get married, I'm a very, very good percentage. Um, and I enjoyed the emotional experience. It's like, what better time to be with a person during the, their happiest time of their life?
0: Sounds like you're a marriage lucky charm as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, thank you very much, for Howard, for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to reconnect with you and have you share all your wisdom with our audience.
1: Oh, thank you, Juan. It was a pleasure being with you. It's always nice connecting with you.
0: I'm Vontone Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America.